0: Good afternoon and welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity via the chat. If you are viewing the recorded version, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of your screen. If you have called in today, please send Tanya McCleskey an email so we can record your attendance. And if you have any questions, we would like you to enter those into the Q&A bubble here at the bottom of your screen, and we will ask those at the end of our session. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speakers, Dr. Martin Austin and Dr. Kyle Armstrong. Dr. Martin Austin attended NYU Medical School and completed his internal medicine residency at NYU Bellevue Hospital in New York. He served as primary care internal medicine resident. Dr. Austin is board certified in internal medicine and hospice and palliative care. He has served as system medical director for hospital medicine at Northeast Georgia Medical Center since August of 2021. Also, Dr. Kyle Armstrong attended Kansas City University for medical school and completed his psychiatry residency at Oklahoma University in Tulsa. He received a master's in medical bioethics while attending KCU. He has been a practicing consult liaison psychiatrist here at NGHS since August of 2020. Join me in welcoming Dr. Austin and Dr. Armstrong today.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, This is Marty Austin, and I am going to speak briefly about um, the uh, AMA or Against Medical Advice uh, policy and about AMA in general. And then um, the bulk of the talk will be Dr. Armstrong talking about uh, decision-making capacity, which is really a much broader topic and relates to many things, among them, uh, against medical advice. So why this talk? Um, We've had some uh, recent issues um, with questions about decision-making and against uh, medical advice. And um, as a result of that, there have been some changes in uh, policies. And also um, as a general rule, it's a good idea to understand these issues um, and uh, especially decision-making capacity because basically every time a patient makes a decision, um, we do some sort of informal um, look at what their ability is to make that decision. So um, a couple of things about uh, against medical advice. So first, who leaves against medical advice? Um, research has shown that uh, overwhelmingly or uh, very um, overrepresented, to, overrepresented in this group are uh, people who are in vulnerable groups, uh, minorities, people of lower uh, socioeconomic status, um, they're people who if they do leave against medical advice have a high uh, likelihood of being readmitted. Um, and um, they, um, there is a, a more substance abuse among these people, although not the majority, but there's, there's a significant um, number of uh, patients who leave against medical uh, advice who do have substance abuse disorders. Um, why do they leave against medical advice? Um, Frequently, they don't trust the medical medical system, or they may disagree with um, their treatment plan. And I know that gets under a lot of our skins, so it's tempting to get angry at patients who wanna leave against medical advice. I don't know about you, but for me it seems like they always wanna leave at night when their attending isn't there. Um, However, um, when they do research, one of the big reasons that people leave against medical advice in addition to that is because of financial issues. Um, there's very frequently a financial reason why the patient wants to leave. and I'll never forget a patient I had who um, had left against medical advice uh, because of a foot ulcer um, because he had to get back to work as a used car salesman where he stood all day and he ended up being readmitted for an amputation. But his reason to leave was because he had to work because he wanted to um, he wanted to uh, you know keep his home, Um, Otherwise, he was afraid he'd lose his job and be homeless. And and that's the image that I always have in my head when I think about people leaving against medical advice. So um, here is the tips uh, sheet for the uh, provider against medical advice documentation. This is part of changes we made to improve our against medical advice uh, uh, procedures uh, and specifically to address um, some issues that we had with patients who uh, may have not been... uh, had the capacity to, um, to leave against medical advice um, being uh, discharged from the hospital. Um, so um, you can reach this by doing a progress note um, using the dot phrase, um, dot A-M-A-I-P or A-M-A. If you t- hit dot A-M-A, it'll pop up. It will give you um, this um, form that you can see. Um, and the important thing about this form is you have to go through it and answer the questions. If a patient has any history of cognitive dysfunction or dementia noted in the chart or known to you, um, you know, and you may even want to look to see if they're on RCEP, even if they seem high functioning, even if they seem to have um, decision making capacity, um, for the purposes of against medical advice, if you're saying that they do have capacity, you need two physicians to verify that. Interestingly, if you want to say they don't have capacity, you only need one physician. But if you want to say that they do have capacity, it's okay for them to leave. You need two physicians to document that decision. Um, This is our uh, form that the patients uh, sign when they leave um, the uh, hospital. Um, I I do think that this is probably the most unfortunately named form we have, or uh, it says release from responsibility. The one thing I would take away from this is that this does not release you from responsibility. Um, it doesn't give you a clean slate that you can. You have no liability. You are liable uh, with the uh, for the patient's care to try to give them the best care you can, given the circumstances that the patient is insisting on leaving the hospital, um, despite the fact that you think they would be better off there. So you are responsible for. Um, working with the patient to get them appropriate, follow up, give them uh, prescriptions uh, to the best of your ability. I know somebody's going to ask the question, well, what if they leave before I can get to them? Uh, well, you document that and there's places to document that in here and you know that, that's obviously not your fault if you if you you know taking care of a medical issue or just can't get to talk to the patient, but if you can, um, we do request that they sign this form as a form of uh, kind of informed refusal of care. Um, again, I think this should be done non-judgmentally. Um, it's really hard to look into somebody's mind. Um, and um, and I think I would um, probably you know just discuss with the patient in a respectful way your 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 thoughts. And if possible, sometimes you'll change somebody's mind. Um, this is the opposite of the uh, against medical advice um, order. This is something uh, uh, that will be active as of August 1st. So as of the date that we're taping this, it's not active, but will be soon. This is the medical hold. um, For patients who do not have capacity, this is a great order to use. It includes the documentation in the order in a similar way to our home healthcare orders have those areas where you just kind of uh, hit the F2 and write in Y. Uh, the patient doesn't have the capacity and that they're at risk for elopement. And this will actually um, tell the staff um, that this patient cannot leave the hospital um, uh, at this time on their own cognizance. Um, And it's a pretty neat order. Again, this will be active August 1st. Um, We advise you to use this. Um, You don't have to use a 1013 to hold somebody in the hospital. It's inappropriate unless the patient has a true psychiatric diagnosis and is gonna require probable ho- psychiatric hospitalization. So a patient who's just demented or confused or delirious um, it, and uh, clearly you know would be unsafe to leave the hospital, this is the order to use, the medical hold. This is just our current policy um, stating that if the patient does insist on leaving the hospital against medical advice, you have them sign uh, their release from responsibility form. And if they refuse to wait, um, you can, um, uh, you know, the nurse will have the patient sign. Um, and if the patient leaves with and just refuses to sign, well, you just document that. Um, this is an interesting article that um, is part of the uh, things we do for no reason um, series. Um, they actually advocate against using uh, medical advice discharges because of the reasons we, we were talking about. It's stigmatizing. Um, sometimes uh, physicians tell uh, patients that your insurance won't pay if you leave against medical advice. There's no evidence that's true. Some people feel that making the patient sign out um, releases them from all liability. Again, that's not true. You have to do your. You can't. You can't like just say I'm not writing you a prescription because you're leaving against medical advice, and I. I um, you have to try to do your best for the patient, given the circumstance. And the reason that people um, don't get sued if there's a bad outcome is because there was no negligence, not because they signed the form uh, stating that there was no responsibility. But again, I am not opposed to this form. It's part of our policy and it is a form of um, informed refusal of treatment. Um, Again, they advocate using shared decision-making, talking to the patient, finding out why they wanna leave, what's the best we can do, is there something we could do that's reasonable, a reasonable accommodation? Maybe you'd stay in the hospital if we did this. Obviously, you shouldn't do something unreasonable or something harmful to the patient, prescribe medications that would be harmful or contraindicated, um, but but, but, working with the patient and documenting that will, 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 will go a lot further as far as both the patient's care, not having them turn up sicker and being readmitted and um, avoiding liability. So again, recommendations of this article was they actually advocated against um, designating discharges as AMA. Um, We do uh, suggest that because of our policy, you you would follow the policy if a patient um, leaves against uh, medical advice, make sure there's objective documentations of the patient's informed choice to leave the hospital, engage in that shared decision-making. And um, if you do choose to say somebody is um, AMA, Um, approach the discharge process the same way you would uh, approach it if somebody was leaving um, that you considered to be an appropriate discharge or, you know, um, you would discharge any other way and give them the appropriate um, uh, best follow-up that you can arrange and uh, prescriptions, etc. And um, with that, I'm going to turn over the talk to Dr. Armstrong and using the miracles of modern technology, I'm going to turn the camera so that you can see him.
2: All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Austin. I definitely appreciate the introduction, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, capacity. It's certainly our bread and butter in consult liaison psychiatry. And my slides are adapted from the slide set from the Academy of consult liaison psychiatry with some addition for myself. And also, uh, I have to thank Dr. Natalia Miles. Many of you might know She's the other consult psychiatrist that we have here, and probably the one you'll interact with, because I'm moving to inpatient, more of an inpatient, Wood Woodroll. So um, she helped arrange these slides and was definitely a big uh, help uh, to, to make this happen. And um, so, uh, so we'll talk about these things. We just want to talk about informed consent, which I think lies at the... Um, the base of what capacity is and someone's ability to uh, actually consent to procedures. And one of the things that I personally struggled with, I felt like we had a good education on basic capacity for procedures, but also dispositional capacity, which kind of um, is like an AMA assessment. And we're talking about disposition and the patient's choice to go home. But that, of course, gets a little more complicated as we talk about patients with cognitive issues. Um, So um, that was something I had to learn on the fly when when I first got here about how to manage those kinds of things. Um, So we'll talk about what, who, how. Uh, We'll talk about um, the four abilities model of criteria. Uh, We'll talk about some relevant questions. I still like to go over these lists of relevant questions when I'm going to do a capacity assessment, just to keep them in my mind, keep them fresh, so I I know what kind of things we need to ask. Um, We'll talk about substitute decision makers or surrogate decision makers, and how and when to contact um, psychiatry. Uh, So Dr. Miles, if you do have some questions. But we definitely wanna empower any of our providers to to be able to answer these questions to the best of their ability. Uh, Because sometimes we come into a situation, we don't know what's been talked about, Uh, we don't know exactly what the procedure entails and the risks and benefits, so we're not as equipped to talk about those things. So as much as you all can do to help uh, facilitate that process and gain a better understanding of that person's ability to make a good decision is very helpful for us as well. So... Um, informed consent is kind of a modern thing. There were a lot of issues in the 1960s and 70s which made it important, particularly I think in the realm of research, but certainly on the hospital side as, as well and in and, and treatment uh, situations. So typically objection to treatment was respected, but it certainly wasn't uh, universal. There was that paternalistic model of delivery of health care. This certainly changed in the modern era to more focusing more on autonomy is, is, what the, is the ethical principle that leads our decision-making. So uh, certainly that's part of the change. So all of these things became codified into policies and uh, procedures in the hospitals uh, somewhere in the 1960s and 70s. Um, uh, so it, the goal was to give people as much ability to have capacity to make these decisions and to come to consensus, I think, between the medical professional and the individual where possible. Um, So again, the prime intent is to promote individual autonomy and to foster rational decision-making. So to help people understand where we're coming from and what recommendations we have and why they might be important. But in the same time, recognizing that people have different values and that they have the right to self-determination, which I think is particularly important in our culture in American culture that's highly valued is autonomy and self-determination and our individualistic principles. Um, and we like to honor that in our setting. And then our responsibility is fiduciary. So we need to make sure we're always acting in the interest of the patient. So that's you know, why it gets a little complicated. A lot of these things, we I feel like people have muscle memory and do automatically, but sometimes it's good to really parse apart the, the details and kind of review these things we might've learned in our residency programs and our uh, medical training. So uh, for informed consent, of course, in education, disclosure of information uh, it has to be a voluntary choice. And then the thing we'll focus on in a minute is the capacity to make those decisions. So that's going to be the key. I think the other two are, are pretty standard, um, but the capacity question is where we get stuck a lot of times. So there are exceptions to informed consent. Uh, just so you know, if there's an emergency, as you know, an emergency room I'm sure you're very familiar with, Uh, The time required to obtain consent is not available without threatening the patient's life. Um, There are times, particularly in my field, where therapeutic privilege might play a role where disclosure may be harmful to the patient, and we can withhold certain information. Um, We try to do that as little as possible, but sometimes it's necessary depending on the situation and when patients waive their rights to consent, and then, again, lack of capacity. So the we'll talk a little bit about capacity and competency. Certainly in the literature, you'll see these sometimes used interchangeably. Um, and some people in some of the articles I've read about this don't like to make the designation, but I find it to be useful um, when we do make the definition because capacity is more of an assessment that we do in a clinical setting. Um, and it's determined by the clinician and it's, it's a very limited assessment. Uh, I think a, a legal uh, jurisdiction is going to make a more broad-based opinion for the patient and take into a lot of evidence into account. And they're more focused on the legal implications. I feel like we're more focused on the ethical implications that we come into contact with here in the hospital. Uh, so, and we have sometimes more limited information. Uh, we have very acute settings, um, someone might be delirious, or there might be other things that are changeable. So I think that's an important distinction. Uh, capacity is a limited assessment. It's a here and now slice of time sort of assessment with specific circumstances and specific questions. Competency is a more uh, a broader assessment, uh, and it's usually using legal definitions. Now, of course, they're going to probably want to use uh, a medical assessment to help determine uh, those those decisions that they're going to make, but they're going to be bringing in other types of assessment too. So, And so we talked a little bit about the important points of capacity. It's a situation by situation thing. So each separate decision um, needs to be assessed in a specific way and weighted in a particular way. And so you might have multiple questions that you ask in a single day for a single patient. Might be some questions about this position, might be procedural questions, and they all may carry different weight. And they may all you might come to different determinations based on the, the nature of the question. Um, and so when you talk with us, with myself or Dr. Miles, we like to have uh, clarity so far as what the specific question is. So, if you need assistance on a particular question, whether it's about the ability to consent to a procedure or whether it's the ability to leave, maybe AMA, we don't like that term, but leave, maybe leaving might not be the best medical decision. So, we have to help everyone understand and come to some sort of consensus. So, we use a sliding scale. So for example, a patient might have the capacity to refuse phlebotomy. So because the risk to benefit ratio is low. Um, So the standard to declare patient incapacity is high, uh, but not refuse uh, uh, urgent cardiac surgery. So that's a little, that's a risk to benefit ratio um, is high. Uh, So the, the standard to declare patient incapacitated is low. Uh, so there's a sliding scale, there's a little chart that um, gives you a visual representation of maybe how to delineate those decisions and how to think of those decisions. The other important part is capacity can change over time. And in, in our psychiatric world, oftentimes we get treatment, psychosis, depression results, and they can uh, regain capacity to make certain decisions. Um, and that's the whole goal is to give them that ability to make decisions that aren't influenced by their depression or psychotic features. More often in the hospital setting, it's a delirious patient. Um, you know, we treat the underlying medical cause and they're able to reason and have more capacity to make their decisions. Uh, so uh, sometimes we have to reassess capacity for certain decisions multiple times um, for the same issue. Um, in the hospital setting. So here's the, I really like this as a, as a kind of visual representation. So uh, one of the things that I would, I, I do ethics and ethics you know, when in, within my ethical degree, we talk about there's an ethical problem when there's disagreement. And I sometimes in early in my training, I would make the mistake that this is, you know, if there's no disagreement, they can consent. Well, that's not necessarily true. So this helped me understand that. So you just be careful when making that that sort of decision, but we look at both treatment risk and treatment benefit and kind of both on the consent side and the refusal side, uh, when we might need to make an intervention and when we might need to document um, something that we need to talk about and that we need to um, consider as we're going forward. Um, So i recommend looking at that and kind of making your considerations and determinations there. Um, So uh, often the question comes as who needs to assess capacity. Certainly doesn't need to just be done by a psychiatrist. Any treating physician can offer assessment. Like I talked about before, sometimes the person who can provide the best sort of informed consent, which is usually the treating provider or the person who wants to do the procedure is the best option because they can help the person understand the procedure with more precision than maybe myself. But we can certainly come in and offer uh, some different assessments. We can look at um, their cognitive status a little more closely and assess whether depression, psychosis, or something like that might be interfering with the patient's um, decision-making. And sometimes the cases are on the line or difficult. And that's certainly an op- opportunity for us to have a good conversation uh, about um, uh, their capacity. And so definitely welcome those those questions. Um, but here's some questions that kind of roll through your head as you're uh, thinking about capacity and when you're consulting us. So why do you want it to why do you want us involved? What's the specific question? and why do you think the patient might lack capacity? So we talked a little bit about that. Is it a cognitive issue? Is it depression, anxiety? Uh, What's the situation of the patient medically? So kind of getting at that severity on that chart, like, um, and then talking about the risks and benefits of the treatment um, and what the, you know, what exactly our goals for treatment might be. What have you what has already been talked about with the patient? What are what are the choices that have been considered? Sometimes for disposition, I I like to make sure someone's already talked about the various options that someone might be that might be available to someone, like long-term care versus um, subacute rehab versus home health versus home with family and why why not one thing might be appropriate versus another. So and then when we get the assessment, I need myself and Dr. Miles like to have the specific question. So if it's disposition, we like to know it's dispositional question, or if it's a procedural question, we want to know about that as well. So this comes with some of our the policy that's documented. This might be changing a little bit, but I can't. There's nothing um, significantly that I think would change. We talked a little bit about medically holding a patient. Um, so the attending physician makes the final determination. As a consultant, we can help you come to a, a safe conclusion or a conclusion that you feel uh, might be the best conclusion to have. Um, and then we have to document that decision. And then if we determine someone doesn't have uh, capacity, uh, we refer to a surrogate medical decision maker. Um, and there are there's certainly procedures and how to determine who that person is uh, as we uh, go forward. And just a point here, I know Dr. Miles uh, made her little arrow about medical holds. I like to use them, but I'm glad we have an order set now, so thank you for putting that into, into the EMR. I think that'll be helpful for people to understand. Um, we do have, I think we, in psychiatry, we hold people a lot more often, who, and we say there's a lack of capacity for depression or psychosis, and we have a legal procedure to do that. So, and that's a whole separate lecture about 1013s, 1014s, uh, 2013, that are all sorts of legal ways we can hold people. I tend to think of those just as a uh, side, as, as more of a, we're ready to medically discharge a person and their transport documents, their ability to, for us to hold the patient until they can get to a psychiatric hospital. Um, and the situation, they have, time limits is the issue so we we want to sit and we want to hold someone and we want to make sure that they're safe from a psychiatric perspective but if say for example someone comes after an overdose attempt and they require time in the ICU um we don't really want to initiate the 1013 there because we don't have really a great opportunity to assess the patient psychiatrically and because the medical reasoning uh the medical is why they're in this hospital, that's why we wanna hold them. Now they might have psychiatric components to their care and psychiatric reasons that complicate and and make them an incapacitated patient, but we like to make sure we medically hold them until we're able to do full assessments and maybe move them on to the psychiatric hospital if necessary. Um, So that's kind of what we got here too. So a person deemed have lack of capacity or limitations on capacity does not need a psychiatric hold. So we've talked about that several times to retain them. Um, So, but sometimes there's not really a document or anything. I think that was a holdup sometimes with people um, that really defined that, that we can hold the person. I know with security, we've run into some of those issues. And um, so I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad we have some more definition to that. So we also have a template. This might be something we want to make shareable. It's certainly shared amongst uh, myself and Dr. Miles and the residents who come to our service. Um, but this, is, this helps me document appropriately and address all the components of capacity. So it talks about our, the evidence and our criminal article that we use, Applebaum and Grisso, but I usually just say Applebaum, 1988 New England Journal of Medicine article There's a lot of research and uh, talk of Applebaum and later studies, but this is all based on that. So it kind of helps guide our documentation. And I like to try to use quotes or um, specific uh, details from our assessments to make sure we're being thorough when we're assessing patients and thinking about capacity. Um, So assessment of capacity, so these are some things to think about. Uh, does the patient have sufficient ability to make meaningful decision given the current circumstance? Um, there's no threshold. Um, so this gets back to that chart. There's the patient's ability expressing, understanding, appreciating, and reasoning. And we'll get to um, each component and what the difference is and what kind of questions we ask. But we also have to see what the level of uh, severity of that situation is. Um, and also another just a little caveat that I like to say, sometimes we have patients or that don't want to answer questions or are just really disengaged with care. Um, and we try to engage them in care, but if they're unable to talk with us and really work through the situation, that's the same. Um, they can't demonstrate that, that's the same as lacking capacity. Even if we think they might have the capacity, they also have to be able to um, engage with with the assessment. And sometimes that just takes time and maybe repeating the questions and emphasizing the need to really engage with the care in the ways that they can. Um, uh, and we kind of talked about that last minute and I wanted to get to this, which is our uh, mnemonic. Um, if you like mnemonics. Um, mm. So uh, <laughs> some people do. This is CRAM. So they have to communicate a consistent choice. I think consistent is important there. Uh, if someone's changing their mind all the time, people are allowed to change their minds, um, but they have to really, if they, have to, if they do change their mind, there has to be a reason or some, some, something that they've come to terms with. But if their decision is all over the map, which has certainly happened with multiple patients, Uh, we have to take that into consideration. They have to be able to understand the relevant information that we offer. Um, So sometimes it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Uh, I want to make sure that's um, appreciated. They just maybe need to know the basic risks. Like you know in AMA cases maybe understand that they could die or that some really bad consequence could happen. Um, And they have to be able to appreciate the circumstances and I always like to put it in terms of like, can you understand why people might be worried about you, why your family or the uh, nurses or why we might be worried about uh, discharge or why we might be worried about you refusing this procedure. And then they have to be able to manipulate the information. And we'll, we'll give you some questions. There's a nice little chart that's coming up. Uh, these are the four elements um, as part of this theoretical framework to assess capacity. So, here's a nice big chart. I don't know. Hopefully, you guys can read it all right. It's pretty small, um, but I think it's a great uh, table that we can look up. You can find it pretty easily online and Google search too. Um, but it helps me with questions uh, for clinical assessment. So, communicating a choice, we talked about that. So, they have to be able to express their choice. Um, uh, so, I like to say, Just, I like open ended questions in general. It's one of the first things we learn about assessment. Um, So, just kind of asking them what their decision is in a general way and making sure that it kind of stays consistent. And there might be a cognitive reason if they're changing their mind all the time. Understanding relevant information that's a basic question. Again, I like to try to keep it as, as broad as possible. Um, but we can nail, we can, if, especially if they, they're not super well educated yet, we can kind of go in and, and offer a little more guidance uh, about the treatments. So I always like uh, just tell me in your own words what you and your doctor have talked about, uh, what problems they're trying to address. So at least they understand uh, the nature of their condition. Um, and then appreciate the situation. That's acknowledged condition and likely consequences of treatment options. So, what do you believe is wrong with your health right now? It's similar to the first question, but I think this one gets more at what do you think will happen if you are not treated. So that that for me, that's probably the most important part of that questioning. So, but you you can look at other questions depending on the situation. um people. Uh, if you do a psychiatric mental status exam, if they don't answer these questions well, they lack insight so, um, and cannot make valid decisions about their treatment. So that certainly comes uh, into play with some of our psychiatric patients who might have delusions or other things. Um, and then reason about treatment options. So that's engaged in a rational process of manipulating information so that's kind of getting at their reasoning process, so the background. So how did you come to that determination? Uh, what made you make that decision instead of another decision? So sometimes there's not the reasons don't sound great to us. Uh, maybe you know they want to go have a cigarette or whatever. Those things can happen, um, but we so we kind of have to weigh their reasoning as part of the process. And I'll say that sometimes uh, the answers lie in some gray area and uh, you know we get that's when either you consult us or you know you just we try to settle on the best option out of maybe not great options so um, so that's the criteria like I said please do look that up later it helps me if I'm just as a refresher every now and again so I can ask good questions to address each area so when I to document, I can answer all the questions in our dot phrase. Um, So this kind of goes into each part, too. So this kind of pulls apart uh, the the charts. I'll kind of go through these quickly, I think. Um, So yeah, this is the ability to understand um, so the nature of the condition and the treatments and the risks and benefits. Um, So uh, I think this slide's got out of order a little bit. This is one about this, like I said, dispositional capacity was something that um, was a little more challenging because it's it's a bigger question I think than some of the procedural stuff. It involves more components, um, which was it made it a little bit harder of a decision. Um, so there's usually the cases I see. There's it, so usually a neurocognitive disorder. If we do the MOCA screening, that's one we do here, or any sort of cognitive screening. It's usually, in my experience, somewhere around 20 out of 30, 15 to 20 out of 30, we start to hit some areas where it's a little more questionable about, can they make decisions? And they start to struggle a little more in understanding and really manipulating information. That's typically where we get called in psychiatry to help um, define um, those those questions about capacity we have the we have the time and bandwidth to maybe do a cognitive assessment and then i also like to get a this article goes into it get a more thorough assessment especially in those gray zones uh, where we ask occupational therapy and physical therapy and making sure case management and social work are both all involved to kind of get a well-rounded decision from multiple specialties to kind of Back out and understand the various components um, of someone's disposition. Usually, like I said, usually someone with some sort of neurocognitive issue going on. So before we make capacity, we've got to answer a lot of questions. And I always like to remind myself that this is my day-to-day work. Like we do these things every day, but these are really important decisions and really meaningful decisions that will affect the person in front of you, life, you know. Going forward. So I like to just back up sometimes and remind myself that sometimes they deserve the opportunity to have the, uh, the thorough assessment to make sure that we're making the right decisions. Um, so um, these are some cases. Uh, we got about what time is it? About 20 minutes. I feel like we can go through some cases. Try to give us about 10 minutes for questions. So so this is a functional abilities of capacity, and this is an understanding case example. Um, so this is a capacity to accept treatment with psychotropic medicines. Certainly something we re, uh, we discuss often. Probably something we do almost automatically when we're prescribing patients. But we'll take it apart. Uh, so Ms. V is a 92 year old female with a history of mild moderate dementia. So probably in that MOCA of you know low twenties late teens um, with significant depressive symptoms on whom you'd like to start a SSRI and uh, to help moderate these symptoms. The patient initially consents to the medication, but when handed the prescription, she politely thanks you for these vitamin pills. When you query her further about what she understands, uh, she says it lowers her sugars. So this is, this is, a good question to kind of grasp capacity and the fact that she might be agreeable to the medicines, but she doesn't really understand what the medicines are for. So um, you can, sometimes I like to try to, it depends on where they are to, I like to definitely offer informed consent and try to review that these medicines are for depression um, and not for lowering, the sugars and they're not vitamin pills and review the risks and benefits. You give them the opportunity to understand and that might come to a different decision. But oftentimes the case is it's been probably described multiple times and she doesn't have capacity. So this would probably indicate that that she would need someone to help her make these decisions. So it's a good time to have someone call a family member and make sure that they're okay with her taking SSRIs. And we've certainly run into the occasion where family wasn't informed and they were upset. Usually not about an SSRI, but certainly with some of our antipsychotics and heavier meds that sometimes people have issues with. Um, So it's definitely important to talk about these things and understand um, when capacity plays for someone like a 90-year-old woman with mild to moderate dementia, which is pretty commonly seen here. So we talk about appreciation, ability to appreciate various um, the the situation. So this focuses on beliefs of illness and treatments. Um, And we talked about what do you believe is wrong with you? Do you think you need treatment? So we'll go to the case here. So um, this is a capacity to refuse a surgical procedure. Uh, Mr. K is a 60-year-old male alcoholic with a known history of... uh, cirrhosis and hematemesis, and he has these episodes that are complicating his prognosis, has hypotension, worsening anemia, um, despite aggressive care. Um, so the, I guess someone's decided he needs an EGD, and uh, he believes it's a, a case of heartburn. Uh, so he really is not uh, appreciating probably the severity of what's going on with him. And so he'll be fine. Um, so he doesn't understand and appreciate the, the, the severity. He might understand there's a medical issue, but doesn't understand that, that he really needs uh, more uh, intensive treatment. So we'd say he doesn't have capacity, and we probably want to figure out why. It might be delirium or something like that. But at the end of the day, we'd probably try to identify a surrogate decision maker to help him make that decision. Uh, reasoning. Uh, that's, again, tell me how you reached this decision and how did you weigh the uh, information provided. So again, another surgical pr- procedure with someone who's a schizophrenic um, presented to the ED after he dumped off a bridge escaped the beds who were chasing him. Um, so, and he had fractures that require surgery. Uh, so he just re- required some orthopedic interventions to help with his uh. Uh, uh, various fractures. Um, But he refuses because he is convinced that the surgeon will implant a device that will block his impressive ability to communicate with those not from this world and allow the FBI to track him. So that's a pretty clear example of uh, understanding and appreciating, but also his reasoning. So the the way he came to that is, is through a psychotic process, which is not rational or reasonable. Um, That's not something that uh, would be happening, hopefully not not happening. So, um, you know, so we would say it doesn't have capacity and try to, again, try to find someone to help. So uh, we'll kind of come to the functional abilities of capacity, again, expressing a choice, a consistent choice, an ability to state the preference. Um, understanding basic information. So that's more of the repeat of of what you've talked about. Um, So sometimes that, hey, this is what we're going to do. Can you just help me understand what your understanding of what we're going to do is. Um, Appreciating uh, the patient's belief about disorder and proposed treatment So that's really appreciating things like severity and prognosis and things like that. So maybe they understand that they have a medical condition, but they don't appreciate Um, exactly how severe the implications of that medical condition. And then the final thing is reasoning. And that's, you know, I thought that was a good example with the psychosis where uh, that that can influence reasoning and that can be disturbed. Um, So uh, just as a summary, um, this is, these are things that I feel like all of us are capable as clinicians to ask. And we probably do a lot of these things without thinking very much about it, but it's when you hit the roadblocks and you start to question yourself and whether you're in the right area that I think it's good to come back. Um, I always come back to the trace and make sure I'm like thinking about each criteria specifically and deeply, um, and then trying to make appropriate, safe, ethical decision-making uh, in coordination with the patient. Um, and so we can help facilitate that in psychiatry, but. Ultimately, it's it's going to be up to each individual clinician to do these things, but we're here to help. Um, so when should decision-making capacity? So like I said, it's done almost at every encounter. Um, the other thing is to really check in when mental status changes. Um, so if there's some sort of event that express, uh, change, that has creates some changes, that's oftentimes when we'll get a consult. That's certainly appropriate to help us understand not only the disease process but also how capacity might be influenced um, by that abrupt change, um, or when pa- usually this is more of the ethical component when there's a conflict um, and when the patient refuses a treatment uh, for various reasons and including AMA discharges. So, uh, so trying to do your own capacity assessment and also trying to encourage rationalization and help improve someone's capacity. I do think we have the opportunity to offer education that helps everyone come to more consensus, and that's certainly part of that shared decision-making process is to try to improve consensus. Um, uh, And it's it's also good to think when you have a risky treatment involved, it's also really good to uh, think about, think pretty deeply about consent. I know with our LVAD procedures, they ask us each time to kind of offer a psychiatric assessment, and they do a very broad based uh, assessment strategy that incorporates many different fields. So, the riskier the treatment, or in case of disposition, so we're telling someone we're recommending long term care or uh, more intensive treatments, I think it's always a good idea to incorporate different specialties and to, to offer a broader assessment and to really take a, take time to consider the patient's ability to consent and to make sure that, that they have that capacity. And I think it does everyone a lot of favors uh, if, we, if we take our time, if we have the time and really do a, a thorough assessment. Um, and then the, when their patients have a risk factor for impaired decision-making, so that's going to be more of our um, Usually, this is the context of depression, or uh, psychosis, or schizophrenia, like we saw in some of the cases. So that's something just definitely to think about. Documentation, um, so that's really important. I think so everyone understands and certainly part of our policy here. So just I think we have great documentation if you want to use our dot phrase. And I think these new forms that we have help, help us do and answer the capacity questions more thoroughly. So try to use those when we can. So information disclosed, a description of the potential consequences, uh, maybe a little note on mental status exam. Uh, You know, I know a lot of y'all don't do our mental status exam, but trying to go to psych and really remembering, you know, orientation questions, gross uh, assessment of memory, those brief assessments um, that we do to maybe get a good, if good baseline, if they answer all those questions, well, great, maybe not move on to a more objective cognitive assessment, but maybe do the cognitive assessment like a MOCA screening or a mini mental status exam if, if we do have some questions. Um, so that might be that's why we' do that. Uh, statement on the patient's performance on the poor abilities. And then a clear documentation for our other colleagues who that's what they're looking for is an opinion on capacity. Usually, like to make it a sentence bold, but something to kind of make it stand out so they can focus their energy on that. Um, and then impression of why the patient lacks capacity, whether it's a psychiatric reason or a neurocognitive reason or something else. And then also, I think it's very nice if we can add what might be done to restore capacity. So maybe we'll be able to reassess the capacity once the medical condition resolves and delirium improves and and we want to make sure we work to restore people's autonomy as best we can. Um, So so that would be something to document as well. Uh, So we talked a little bit about that, psychological factors, psychiatric disorders and neurocognitive disorders. so we talked about the MOCA, CAM-ICU, there's a lot of different uh, tools we can use. I think here in our hospital, most people are uh, knowledgeable about the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. So I like to use that one just because it seems to be well-recognized and understood by all the staff here. Um, one that I really like actually is a St. Louis University mental status exams, the slums. Um, I like that one. I, th- I feel like it's a really good assessment, especially for some of our patients who might not be um, not be, might not be able to read or uh, uh, have some other issues in that way. I think it's a really good assessment, uh, especially for concentration and attention. But uh, we use MoCA here, and I'm fine with that. There's a picture of the MoCA. And then we talk about the substitute decision-making, so who's responsible for the decisions, who are healthcare proxies. I won't go into too much depth, in depth on that. I think we have great staff here who help us Uh, make those decisions and help us to to define who the next in line is going to be. So for our social workers and case managers, thank you very much. It's always very helpful. Um, And there's, I think there's documents that we can refer to as well when we're trying to make those decisions as well. So courts, we typically try to, sometimes we have to go to the court, but sometimes we, we try to avoid the court and try to help them make the decisions and restore capacity as much as possible For ongoing medical decisions here in the hospital, we're able, but it does get complicated sometimes, and sometimes we have to uh, ask the court for some help um, and guidance um, in making these decisions. Talk about ethical issues. It's a. I always think of capacity as kind of an ethical issue, but it has some some uh, difficulties. But certainly, like I said, ethical issues are when my most basic understanding is there's a conflict. So anytime there's a conflict, you're probably coming up with an ethical issue at some point in time. Um, and how to resolve those issues was kind of when we ask our ethical team is really when we're asking them to help our, our, uh, us resolve an issue and resolve a conflict. And, uh, and how do we do that? And there's, that's a, again, another lecture. So, but, and then how to consult sales psychiatry. Um, I know we have the new phone system, but you can always use 93066. And Dr. Natalia Miles, she's going to be your main uh, contact now that I'm moving over to more of an inpatient role, Though I'm sure I'll substitute here and there. Um, but she'll be Monday through Friday. And we also have a great advanced practitioner, Kaylee Holmes, who's working with us, too. So uh, she's definitely helps, and she always talks with us. And we have a really small office, so we always we have no choice but to talk to one another. So definitely reach out to us. We, we can curbside. Um, We can go see a patient, just uh, we're always more than willing to help Um, and sometimes we don't have the answers, sometimes it's just really complex, so uh, forgive us in those occasions, but we're going to try our hardest to help us come to the best decision for the patient. So I think that's everything I have. I think I've got good time about five minutes for any sorts of questions uh, for myself or Dr. Austin these are references if you're
0: interested. Thank you, Dr. Armstrong and Dr. Austin. We do have a, a few questions here in the chat. So um, the first question will be, at night, please advise on how soon we can get help if we need urgent assistance from psychiatry for those high stake high-risk patients who want to leave AMA and refusing treatment and they couldn't clearly determine the capacity?
2: That's a a great question. So we do have uh, have some therapists, Behavioral Health Access Center uh, known as Laurelwood and Intake and all sorts of other uh, situations. Uh, If you you need help, they can sometimes answer the questions very well uh, that are here 24-7. so definitely reach out to them. I forget their number; it's not on the top of my head. But it's easy. The call center knows who they're uh, talking about, and usually we can. If if it's really a question, we can do a medical hold, and then just get us in the morning. We're not here all the time. If it's uh, so, that's probably the route I'd go. So we have some therapists who are fairly skilled in helping answer these questions, especially. Uh, behavioral health access center for any psychiatric issues that might come up, like agitation or anger or things that might be causing some issues. And they can they have guidance and can help guide your care. I don't know if you have any other thoughts, but that's what I, I would do.
1: I, I think the other side of it is, uh, for me, was that I would always uh, err on the side of caution. And if if I wasn't sure, I would probably temporarily Medically hold the patient would be my opinion. If if you weren't sure and it seemed unsafe, until you could get somebody to come by, um, I wouldn't hold somebody up if they I obviously had capacity. Um, but if if it's really a question and they're trying to run out the door, I would hold them. And 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 I don't think you'll ever get in trouble for that. I don't think anybody will fall in imprisonment for like an hour until you can get somebody up.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that.
0: Okay and if a family member is not present who should they involve
2: so that's a that's a good question um you know and sometimes i'm not the best to answer it uh so it depends there's a lot of variables that go into it i know the state has a specific list of people you touch base with versus current uh surrogate decision makers and I come from Oklahoma, and I honestly haven't looked at the list in a while, but it's something you pull up. There's some legal requirements for that. I think our case managers and social workers typically have a good idea of, of what that would say. They might. They're probably a great resource for us to ask any uh, questions of as well. But I believe there are probably some information online, too, to help us understand what that, you know, delineated role is. Um, but it's a little different from state to state.
1: So. And go ahead. Oh, no, I was uh, I I would agree with uh, Dr. Armstrong, there is a list. It's more complicated among family members, Um, you know, and I think it also depends on how urgent the intervention is. Like sometimes you have to make an emergency decision and you do the best that you can. Um, It does get down to the point of being like an involved friend or something if if there aren't uh, family members that you can identify. but, but there is the, the family member list, is pre, you know, there's, a, there's an exacting thing about which family member outranks which family member illegally.
2: Okay.
1: Um, but then you can get to involved friends.
0: Okay, thank you. And um, the last question here I see is, uh, what are some tools or questionnaires that we can use to assess the capacity?
2: So, um, so yeah, definitely check out that, uh, that slide with the questions. I usually, there's um, some articles, that article that was in there, the dispositional capacity article, has some questions that are available to you to have some ideas of what questions to ask that kind of answer each one of those areas, one of those four areas that we ask you to look at. Um, so I just look something up if I'm really stuck or I don't know what to ask uh, online. There's a look up Applebaum articles. There's a ton of them that kind of are referencing Apple Applebaum as our uh, our capacity guy in psychiatry world. So definitely check out his articles. Um, and a lot of times they'll have a little chart with just quite example questions that you can ask to help help you guide your capacity assessment. Um, so, yeah, I use, definitely use them a lot in residency, and I certainly still, still go for a refresher from time to time
1: now as well. Um, I actually have a question I wanted to ask. Uh, so, um, where do we draw uh, the lines between, you know, I have advanced medical knowledge, and I really disagree with you. That doesn't make sense to me. I think we've seen this more with COVID, um, you know, like you came in and you're hypoxic. But you're insisting that um, it's either not COVID, that COVID is made up because that's what you saw in the media, or uh, or um, that you should take um, an unproven uh, medication like ivermectin instead of. And I mean, you can extend that to all sorts of people who seem otherwise intact, but they might say, "I think this is heartburn and not not you know varices." I don't believe you. Um, that's a that's a great
2: question. I've done I've done this lecture with some uh, internal medicine residents uh, this, during COVID, and it certainly came up as a question. I think as a as a source of frustration because um, this certainly happened. I know a lot during that period, and the the answer to this is probably it result, comes to something that's culturally accepted. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, when we come into those issues, we can't say that this is a result of psychosis and you know, or some other psychiatric condition. It's a culturally accepted norm that has been, you know, maybe it's misinformation, but it's what they believe, and it's culturally accepted probably in their peer groups. Um, So I don't think there's anything that we can do to say that that's a lack of capacity, except go and try to reason and try to bring the evidence of their own condition and have good conversations in that regard and really try to center it on understanding of the here and now uh, as much as possible. But I, so far as limiting capacity, I'd say it it can't limit capacity and the patient should be able to make that decision. I don't think it's from a psychotic process or other psychiatric process. So I think we're we're stuck. That's, again, the That goes back to that last, the the ability to manipulate information. We talk about the reasoning, um, but I, even that's the reason for it, but since it's culturally accepted, I think we have to understand it as as the norm um, and that's something that some people believe.
1: And I don't know if this is legit, but what I do a lot of times is I'll ask, do you understand what, what, can you tell me what I, why I'm concerned about this if you're not concerned about it? I don't know if that's legit, but that's because some people just disagree with me, even though it seems pretty obvious to me that they're wrong.
2: Yeah, I do too. That's one of my, actually, I really enjoy it. I, I Like, can you understand why someone has these concerns about you? And if they can say, well, yeah, but this is my culturally held belief, and that's something they're gonna stick to, then, um, then I can more safely say that they have capacity. So I do like that question. can you understand why myself or another family member who's concerned might have that that sort of feeling it really gets at that capacity um and i think it's very helpful so okay. okay
0: it looks like we have one more question um and then um and then we'll be done so a patient upset with an rn wants to leave refuses to answer relevant questions threatening legal action if held and want to leave. Please advise on how to approach.
2: So I think that comes to that question of, even like the overnight question, I think it's safer to medically hold that patient until they can be assessed um, by yourself or whoever the medical professional is to do a capacity evaluation. And the the emphasis needs to also be on that one part where we talked about if they can't demonstrate capacity, they don't have capacity. So it might be someone you figure, someone who's mad and doesn't wanna be here. Maybe there's some reason a lot of times they're craving to use or one reason or another, there's something else driving it. They have to be able to demonstrate that capacity. So they have to at least give us something and they have to be able to talk with uh, the clinician who needs to assess them. So that's one of those cases where I think medically holding someone until an assessment can be done, I mean, within a reasonable time frame is is important. Uh, so and I don't think like Dr. Austin said, I don't think you're gonna get in trouble for that. It's in a couple hours sometimes to do that. So, and so we should understand that that assessment needs to be done if we need to do it. So um, that would be my answer. I don't know if you have a different perspective.
1: Um, the only other thing that I would say is in general, if the patient had, you know, Obvious, like if they get really angry and they were fine right up to that point and the nurse said, you know, we're cutting back on your dilated, and they say, well, I'm leaving against medical advice and then they're furious and they say I'm leaving and then they won't talk to you. I would probably use the fact that it's unlikely that they suddenly became incapacitated based on that situation. Um, You know, if there was a question previously or or there was other findings, but um, I think if somebody just was really angry and had otherwise been normal um, and just refused to speak to me, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold them there just because they refuse to speak to me in that case.
2: Okay, and that would be assessing risk, I think, during that little chart where if mm-hmm. it's fairly low risk, or if they leave, you know, and we're, it's just going to be an issue, I think that would be certainly a good consideration. And you already talked with them that day or the other day and they had capacity. Yeah, that's I think, important. So uh, again, that risk stratification Um I think, comes into play there. So there's a low threshold for, um, in that situation, uh, for giving them the capacity to to make their own decisions and let them go, so, all right.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. This was uh, great information for our physicians and clinical staff, if you will, please. We did um, enter the survey evaluation and attendance um, uh, survey link into the chat. So if you'll do that for us, we would greatly appreciate it. And thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.